Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Thank you again for joining us. Today, we're going to talk to Robert Bork Jr., who is an old a business acquaintance of mine and who happens to be, believe it or not, the son of the late Robert Bork, the great legal intellectual, moral and social critic, all the things. Uh, the interesting thing about Robert Bork Jr. is that he's a super interesting guy himself. He's not a lawyer, but he has somehow managed to surround himself with lawyers, doing all kinds of consulting work for lawyers, crisis management, uh, consulting. Robert, why don't you tell, tell the story yourself rather than my, you know, having to put sure. your elevator pitch. Well, Ron, it's good to see you again after a number of years. Uh, and uh, we did have a fun time working on a juicy project, but, uh, but moving on from that, I, uh, I was a journalist for a dozen years, uh, which was what my father wanted to be. Uh, he, uh, when he graduated from the University of Chicago undergrad, he applied to uh, to the uh, Columbia University Journalism School, but they de they denied him entry. You know, you would wonder why that would be. But I wouldn't having wonder. Gone, after having gone to Chicago, but at that time, Chicago was a great book school run by a fellow by the name of Robert Maynard Hutchins, and Columbia didn't recognize the degree. Oh, really? he, as far as they were concerned, he hadn't gone to college. So uh, my father's thinking that you had to have a degree from a journalism school to be a journalist, sort of threw up his hands and went to law school, <laughs> went to the University of Chicago Law School. And Which that didn't is recognize the degree. <laughs> yes. And, and, and of course, that was one of those great forks in the road, you know, somewhat wow. historic, I would think. Um, and um uh, so I wanted to be a journalist. I, I worked at my college paper, took a year off of college and was a reporter, a police reporter at the Miami Herald and did all kinds of crazy police reporting kinds of things. And later, uh, when I finished, I was a police reporter again for a while. Then I switched into uh, business and economics on the theory that you could actually understand that. And politics made no sense to me. Um, worked at uh, the Detroit Free Press, Forbes Magazine, U.S. News and World Report. Uh, and then... Uh, that was uh, my, my stint at U.S. News coincided with my father's confirmation or lack thereof. And uh, when I got done with that, I couldn't go back to journalism. I was just so disgusted by my colleagues, many of them friends in Washington, D.C., and their uh, ineffective and dishonest reporting about him during his confirmation. So I quit and uh, spent a year at the Heritage Foundation doing very little. Uh, but enjoy, but, but learning lots of conservatives. I wasn't really terribly political, uh, but learning from all those people. And I spent a, a, a couple of years on uh, the Hill 
writing speeches. Did your writing. father consider himself terribly political? Uh, no, he considered himself terribly intellectual and uh, and a public servant who happened to be, in other words, the president. He was a conservative. He was not a, necessarily a Republican. Uh, I mean, I I don't think you know he certainly wasn't a Democrat, but he and 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 supported Richard Nixon uh, as a Republican. But I think mostly because he thought that the the politics of the Republican Party at that time were more conservative and economically based and sound. And that's why he was a Republican. Uh, and then I worked for uh, the U.S. Trade Representative Carla Hills writing speeches for her. And then uh, Bill Clinton won. I had nothing to do. So I <laughs> helped some Reagan and Bush speechwriter friends of mine start a company to write speeches. It was called the White House Writers Group. Uh, did that for a few years and then started my own company. One of my clients and what, what I got in, how I got into the kind of practice that you and I worked on, uh, was uh, one of my clients was a group called the Civil Justice Reform Group, uh, which was a, a collection of, uh, of general counsels of major corporations and who were ad advocating for tort reform. So we worked, that was my big project. And when that was over, they said, well, can you do what you did on that for us in actual cases and our actual litigation? Can you, can you help us for want of a better word, uh, you know, spin or explain uh, using communication techniques, very often political techniques, to uh, to help us communicate about our cases. So I started a company to do that. So that was a fairly new concept at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, there were, you know, the, the, the fellow who uh, uh, did Westmoreland BCBS, it was sort of a pioneer in that. Uh, his name is John Scanlon, I think his name was. And... Um, and there are a couple other people. Uh, it was a fairly new concept. Everybody's doing it now. Everybody says they can do it now. Law firms advertise that that's what they do now. Uh, you know, Ted, Ted Olson, his practice is a crisis practice uh, with the added benefit of being a lawyer. So uh, anyway, uh, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Worked on a lot of product liability cases, uh, traveled the, the world, uh, uh, Spent a wonderful cold winter in Anchorage, Alaska for a client. Um, got to see the Iditarod up close. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, there, there were, uh, but that's, that's what I was doing up until really a couple, three years ago uh, when, you know, if I could segue into uh, the book and things, uh, when I noticed that there was this assault coming, you know, the uh, antitrust uh, uh, the left, the, the progressive left, or as they refer to themselves, the neo-Brandesians, or as they've been referred to as the hipsters, <laughs> the hipster economists, the hipster, uh, they were attacking the regime or the, the enforcement uh, regime uh, of the last 40 some odd years that was created by uh, really my father's work on that book, The Antitrust Paradox. Uh and uh, I decided I had to get into the fight. But let me just back up and tell you a little bit about my father's thinking and work in antitrust. Uh, so he started all learning about all this stuff and studying economics and 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 and, and the law and economics approach to law uh, when he was at, Ch at Chicago Law School uh, with uh, uh, professors like Aaron Director and uh, Ed Levy and others. Uh, and when he uh, was a an practicing antitrust lawyer, Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago, when he really decided that what he wanted to be 
he, he didn't want to just keep doing cases over the same cases over and over and over again. He wanted to be uh, right and think and and he somehow managed to get a job teaching at Yale University Law School, where he was one of two, possibly three conservatives, and taught antitrust and started working on his ideas and writing articles in the 60s about uh, what was wrong with antitrust law and how it was being applied. So, so for purposes of people who yes. are not antitrust groupies, uh, which is, you know, where we are. In, which is pretty much everybody. Yeah. Which is almost right. I mean, the fact is I took a lot of, I was in Chicago when I was in law school in the eighties. So mm -hmm. I had law and economics on the brain and I took uh, uh, two antitrust courses. And I, then I went on to Kay Scholler, which had done all that antitrust work for Texaco. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, I'm old school, mm -hmm. but give people a sense of how important antitrust policy was in the middle of the 20th century. Sure. Because I, I think a lot of people don't appreciate it. Well, really, you know, it goes back to the late uh, 19th uh, century. Right, yeah. But, you know, the uh, the, uh, the, the uh, famous uh, Sherman Act uh, was written and passed in, I guess, the 1890s. Uh, and then subsequently there was the FTC Act in the early part of the 20th century and the Clayton Act and uh, then the Robinson Patman Act, which nobody talks about except <laughs> this, this crowd in Washington now. Right. But, uh, you know, it's called antitrust because uh, that's how major business was, major businesses, corporations were organized. They were organized as trusts. So you had the, you know, Standard Oil Trust and you had the when when there became developed be concern about how big they were so the how, in other words these trusts would own the various standard oil companies right so, so that you'd have the flexibility of not having an, an overly large corporation but they would coordinate their actions so that standard oil of the pennsylvania would not be in any way competing with standard oil of new jersey and they would act as a as a group in order to eliminate competition yes at least that was the that was the thing that was the, the the allegation. So the law developed, that's why it's called antitrust. It was opposed to these trusts. I think better today to call it competition law because antitrust sounds yeah. ominous and confusing. And it really is, you know, not relevant right. to the current corporate structure. Uh, so what you had was all these standard oil and other railroad trusts and other things. And uh, they wanted to bust them up. Um, and that really for the most of the 20th century up until the really the 1970s, not really the late 1970s and early 80s, um, the, the, the thinking was, uh, the sort of approved thinking about antitrust was uh, we have to, we have to apply these, we have to break up these, uh, any, any big company, we have to call them, you know, uh, if it's uh, big, it's bad. In fact, you know, and it and, didn't have to be a monopoly. It didn't have to be a monopoly. And uh, I'll just skip ahead to one of the punchlines is a monopoly is not illegal. A monopoly is only illegal if you if you if you created it in a illegal way uh, or if you use its monopoly power to abuse your, you know, your competitors. But being big because you made a better mousetrap and everybody's flocking to you for your mousetrap. That's not against the law. Anyway, so um, we had the, the Justice Louis Brandeis and Justice William O. Douglas 
uh, running amok at the Supreme Court and breaking things up in famous cases. Uh, and but basically saying that if it's big, it's bad. Uh, and uh, my father felt that in the 60s uh, that antitrust was being abused and misused and wasn't being wasn't even thinking uh, properly about what it was supposed to be. Uh, that's why he called it the antitrust, his book, The Antitrust Paradox. It was not being used really for the benefit of consumers. It was to, it was protecting weak and inefficient competitors from bigger, more efficient companies. And as you know, one of the one of the most common axioms in antitrust cases opinions is the purpose of the antitrust laws is to, not to protect competitors, but to protect competition. So yes. Even, even, was, even if your father would, even, even if your father would sign on to that, to that formulation, he, I assume he would argue that what was being protected were, as you say, weak competitors rather than a competitive market. Right. Exactly. But when he started working on this book in the sixties, he taught himself. And I remember this vividly uh, when I was young, young boy, really about 10, 12, 13 years old, being up in his office in the attic on Huntington Street in New Haven. And he was up there working on a desk that my mother made out of an old door, you know, with a big window air conditioner and smoking cigarettes. And, and, uh, and he taught himself economics and, uh, and well, he taught himself calculus so he could do the economic calculations. Uh, you know, he felt that was critically important. And so he wrote this book really when uh, in the late 60s, it was delayed by 10 years in publishing because he was appointed uh, Solicitor General by Richard Nixon. He felt he shouldn't have a book about you know, taking on the policy of another division of the Justice Department uh, while he was uh, Solicitor General. And also my mother had become very ill at that point. So uh, he just didn't finish it. Finished it in 1978, it was published then. In 79, amazingly, the Supreme Court cited it in an antitrust case. Uh, and his idea of the consumer welfare standard being the uh, key to thinking about what antitrust really ought to be. Uh, it should really be for the benefit and the welfare of consumers, not for the benefit of the companies themselves. And uh, when you say, and we so, so now we're using the term welfare the way econo economists use it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, not welfare programs, but welfare meaning the benefit, the utility as an as an aggregate mm -hmm. of of. of the people that the policy is purportedly meant to protect. Correct. And so if, you know, the Supreme Court in that, in that case, which was called Ryder v. Sonitone, uh, about hearing aids and uh, other cases since has really uh, ingrained uh, the consumer welfare standard in the law through judicial fiat. There is no statute there's no antitrust law called Bork or anything else, or consumer welfare statute 
Uh, it's all based on the court's interpretation and an application of antitrust laws using that as the basis for its application. And it has been that way for 43 years. And I would argue, and others would argue, uh, that during that period, we've seen more innovation, more growth, more job creation, not just because of the consumer welfare standard, but because of other sort of more conservative, uh, laissez-faire, you know, free market uh, uh, policies uh, that have allowed the economy to grow. At the same time, of course, in Europe, they don't do that. And you don't see that economic growth. You don't see that job creation. You don't see, there's no, you know, French equivalent of Apple. There's no Palm, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, uh, it, it doesn't happen because they don't have uh, a way, they don't think about economics and the law the same way we do. Now, let's take a step back. Yeah. To my uh, discredit, although we were all, you know, just as a generation ago, uh, we, you know, we were all Keynesians. When I was in law school, we were all Borkians, of course, but I actually never read the antitrust paradox uh, in, in full. Your father obviously accepted the premise, or at least for argument's sake, and that's what I'd like to know, that a degree of non-laissez-faire government intervention to promote the consumer welfare standard was an appropriate policy under antitrust laws. Did he? Yes. Yes, yes he did. He did. Um, yeah, I... In my travels in this in this uh, area of law in the last couple of years, I met people who've argued with me that there's no appropriate application of antitrust law. Uh, you know, the government should stay out of it. The only thing they should only thing they should do is uh, break up any government sanctioned monopolies, like uh, AT and T uh, was broken up years ago, and uh, uh, but uh, and created the Bell companies, and then you know created the world we live in today. But yes, he thought that there, there were appropriate applications um, and two thoughts on that. One, of course, was he famously, towards the end of his life, uh, well, in, you know, in the 90s, uh, sided with the, with, the, with the antitrust division of the Clinton administration, of all things, uh, in its uh, in Microsoft case. Uh, you know, he, the, the people from... Um, Netscape came to him and said, uh, and, and does anybody know what Netscape is anymore? They're, they're gone. But they uh, uh, came to him and said that, that you know, they were being uh, abused by the Microsoft monopoly on browsers um, and, uh, and thought he should take their side. And he said, no, but convince me. And they did. And so he then worked with Ken Starr and uh, the late great Ken Starr, uh, really on the side of the government on the Microsoft case, which of course resulted in almost nothing being accomplished in the end. But uh, and, and and why was that? Was a, a lack of were they just not prepared to to, to fight the, the the way these things were fought a generation ago? I think part of the problem. Yes, I think part of the problem is. Also, that um, as with many things in antitrust, you start a case, and by the time you get around to finishing it, the market is different. <laughs> in these tech markets, you know, 
let me learn, let me run something by you. Yes. That I that if someone stopped me on the street and asked me why the Microsoft antitrust case went nowhere, I might have said, by this time, although there were certainly judges uh, on the bench who still remembered the glory days of antitrust, the antitrust law had really fallen into desuetude, and the the cases that were brought in the 60s and 70s, it was just part of the, the back and forth. It was just what federal judges did a lot of. And by the time Clinton is kind of blowing the dust off, I don't know whether those the claims were made under the Robinson-Pappen Act or the Sherman Act, they probably were both, they always are. Um, there just wasn't this, it wasn't part of the, of the, um, the lexicon, the paradigm of how how the law dealt with policy. I mean, do you think, did, you, did your father ever talk about that? Or did you ever get a sense that, you know, just there wasn't an appetite for it? Um, Doesn't ring any bells with you? Well, I, I'm just trying to think what, I'm trying to think about the conversations we had uh, about it. But uh, no, I, I think. I would say by in some ways, in some ways, he was, he was a victim of his own success that's consumer welfare standards. That is exactly what I was thinking. Yes. You know, uh, and uh, which people uh, mistook for a belief in we don't need anti, but we don't need antitrust law. Right. Right. He was a, the consumer welfare standard is a neutral, small d democratic principle designed, which gives antitrust a focus on doing what it, you know, the best thing possible to in, ensure competition, which is to uh, make this consumer the center of all the considerations in antitrust, um, not a whole range of other things that the left is trying to bring in now, like equity and labor and you know ESG and all that stuff, and use antitrust to enforce those things. No, the consumer is at the center, and I think uh, the consumer was really at the center of the Microsoft case. You know, it was. The nature of the issue was was bundling, um, you know, browsers with operating systems, and ultimately, one can argue that that they won, and you know, everybody's bundling, and uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're 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 that that's not quite the offense. It was you know, the, the, no one understood then, and I don't think they understand now the value of network effects, uh, in in all of this. Anyway, so so that, that went by the boards. Um, later, uh, he was, uh, asked by Google to help them. It was actually the last professional thing he ever did when they were under investigation by the federal trade commission for having a monopoly in search, which has come around again now. Uh, and he and, uh, and, uh, Greg Sidak wrote a paper together about, about that arguing that, you know, kind of complicated but no they don't have a monopoly in search and i would say one can actually look around now and make that case even more easily because there are so many search engines out there not just sort of mega search engines like google but you know walmart has a search engine you know to to go through walmart to get you know and amazon is a search engine and uh almost anytime you go on your computer now to find anything uh, whether you know through any company's website, you're you're using a competing search engine. Uh, Twitter is a search engine. 
Twitter is a certain people get their news through Twitter. And, you know, I think the news organizations kind of ticked off about that. But uh... so it's interesting that you mentioned that because the, my last professional involvement with antitrust was a was a lawsuit against Google for monopolistic practices in connection with the Google Play Store on behalf mm -hmm. of a social media platform that I will not name because I'm embarrassed now to have represented them given what a lunatic their uh, founder has turned out to be but god they, i really want to, i want you to tell me i, I didn't want to talk about gab it's really it's embarrassing <laughs> um but we felt we had a very strong case uh, against against the, the google play store um because because google had economic interests in other words, our argument had to have been not that they're wrong to keep competing ideas out of the marketplace. That's not an antitrust claim, but rather they were they had economic interests which militated against competitors to Twitter uh, coming into the market because they had a partnership with Twitter. Uh, the client got cold feet and dismissed the case after a couple of weeks. And we never got to see where that went, but Google, you know, separate apart from what the left is doing. Now the right has also had its interest in shaking the tree of antitrust again and saying, Hey, you know, whether it's search, a search monopoly or whether it's an advertising practices monopoly, which I think is where the action is right now with the state attorneys general. And this kind of gets us into that, the whole topic of, the you know these big technology companies that make massive acquisitions they they obtain all kind you know they've got all kind of all kinds of vertical integration although what you call vertical has to take on a new meaning because they're they're so comprehensive in other words when ford integrated vertically right it was you know from the sheep to provide the wool for the seats you know up to the finished product when google on the other hand buys ways Oh no, they didn't buy ways. They 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 bought the company. They, they, what became Google Maps, or did they buy ways? I I, I, I think they bought ways. They bought ways, right? And then and ways is the engine for Google Maps, right? Oh, that's that's exactly that. that's what it is. So, but they also have a separate ways product, but, and there's also a separate ways product, and it's also it's it, it's it's behind lots of private branded. Uh, mm -hmm. And to a large extent, this stuff is a lot more complicated than what the Rock the games the Rockefellers are playing with petroleum. Right. So you're right that there is a, a, a lot of people disregard network effects. And when people talk about monopolies today, there's well, start, you know, one one of the wise ass retorts in social media when somebody complains about the way they don't like Twitter is being run, the way they don't like YouTube is being run, start your own. To which the response is, well, the only the only way people can talk about start your own is if they don't understand network effects. Now, is, was network effects when when did, did network effects always exist and we're only talking about them now for some reason? And if if so, why are we only talking about them now? I think they've always existed. They're just it's just bigger and more powerful now. I mean, the, as the network grows, it's more powerful. But you know, there are there are newcomers in all of these areas. There are new search engines, DuckDuckGo. 
uh, and others. Some of them I've never well, even heard of. Well, Bing, I mean, going back to Microsoft, Bing, and, yeah. and there's your horizontal, you know, your diversification of services. Microsoft, oh gosh, they're, they're bundling. If, if Microsoft hadn't ma maintained a presence in the, in, in the browser space, they probably would have never developed Bing. I mean, Bing really is a competitor for Google in search. Right. I wouldn't right. go so far as to say that Microsoft Edge is giving Chrome any worries right now. Yeah. Uh, I can't get rid of it. It keeps coming back. Every time you, you do an update, right, that Microsoft says, you know, this, this system would work a lot better <laughs> if you would use our recommended browser. Really? Right. What recommended browser is that? <laughs> Right, right. Um, but I, I think what I was going to say was, uh, you know, when pe no, no, no. When, when people go on about, you know, the all-seeing, all-powerful Google, I remind them about Yahoo. I mean, you know, Yahoo was there first. Uh, and Yahoo is, actually, Yahoo keeps niggling its way back into my browser. But Yes, I, I must have that attachment, that, that extension also. There's something but, called but, Chrome yeah. search. Right. What the hell is that? And I've, I've deleted it so many times. I know. I have to keep going in and changing things. But um, so uh, what were we talking about? We're so, yeah. So there's, there's, there's that. But you, you actually started something a few minutes ago, which was... Uh, Network effects. Well, no, actually, I want to go back to the, oh. the thing about my, my father. And, uh, you know, oh, I, oh, I brought Microsoft. up Microsoft because you said, well, everybody thinks he doesn't like and application of antitrust law at all. And so there's the Microsoft case. Um, and I would say if he were alive today, he would, like a number of state attorneys general are doing now, be looking at ESG uh, and its application by asset managers and, and uh, proxy managers uh, as a similar kind of collusion uh, and, uh, and monopoly power uh you know in investment you know you see them basically these companies have essentially 70 trillion plus in assets under management well the and whole concept of institutional investing yes that's that's something that was not on the radar in the 60s when your father was writing his book yeah Calpers. And so they're, they're forcing corporations some of them very willingly but you know co coercing at least pushing at, at, at the at the at the the, the small end of the thing, uh, into adopting all these ESG rules and standards and uh, being scored on what they do uh, and denying, ultimately denying capital to companies that don't want to do it, particularly oil and gas companies uh, and others. So uh, energy companies and anybody who's, and, and of course they keep expanding what the definition of ESG is, so, uh, you know, if you're a company uh, that gives money to Republicans, that's, you know, you get scored badly. If you get, uh, if you, you know, have, uh, uh, depending on what your internal rules are about uh, uh, labor uh, and um, uh, labor unions and other things, you get scored badly and that denies you capital. So uh, I think he would be looking at this very seriously as one of the great uh, you know, monopolies, you know, or, or cartels, ESG cartel uh, of all time. So that ironically, to some extent, 
you might argue that this is a joining of the antitrust para paradox with uh, slouching towards Gamora. <laughs> you know, because because these the policies that are, that are being pushed by these institutions are illiberal. Yes, in the guise of liberalism, they are profoundly illiberal. Yes, and 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 plus, what we have now, and here's what I where I I warned you, I want to go a little bit before we. I'm happy to do it. Which is, we've got we've got the government coming in and becoming part of the game, and there's this. You know, before, you know, there are two things, right? First, there's this convergence of, of the state and the corporation, which probably became easier following the consumer welfare standard to some extent, um, arguably, but also the institutionalization of big government in a way that, you know, obviously Reagan would have been horrified by. To, to the extent that you've got this phenomenon called the deep state, which is basically all your friends, right? Wait a minute. <laughs> all my oh. friends. I, I, I want you to know, I, I moved out of Washington two years ago, so uh, okay. I'm, 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 I'm in rehab. Uh, no, after growing up in New Haven, you know, <laughs> you, live, you live in a normal part of America now? or Well, almost normal. I live just to the east of Charlottesville. Okay. So, all right. You know, far enough away. From the beltway that I can't hear the road noise. And, um, and you know, but I still hear all the chattering from the chattering classes up there. I, I, I guess what I would argue is what you call the deep state uh, might be what the Supreme Court is taking on now. And it's in its look at uh, uh, administrative law. Uh, you know, ad law is getting kind of uh, uh, poked and scraped a little bit by the uh, by the Supremes. And they come after the FTC, uh, you know, and uh, for uh, basically being judge, jury, and executioner. Um, that to me is an attempt to roll back some of the power of the deep state. And ironically, you have revanchists like my friend Adrian Vermeule saying, "No, deep state administrative state's great. This is exactly what the Constitution had in mind. Let the experts expert." Really? Well, I would argue. <laughs> You're hanging out with the wrong people. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot we don't agree on, but he's a, he's a great intellectual. <laughs> uh, I, I would argue that the, many of these independent these independent agencies are largely unconstitutional. Uh, and I, again, I'm not a lawyer. I just sort of intuit this from hanging around with the wrong people, as you say. Um, but um, it does strike me that when we send our representatives to Congress, they ought to actually represent us. They ought to actually decide what the policies are that these agencies apply. What they do is they say, there's a problem, go fix it. And don't bother us with the details. And then the people who are affected by those details ultimately sue, get to this, maybe they get to the Supreme Court, maybe they don't. And, and then if, you have, if the Supreme Court isn't of the right mind, you know, nothing happens, but if it is, you begin to see a little bit of rolling back now, as we did in the West Virginia case and in, in Axon just now, recently. Uh, but, but, you know, in addition to these economic and sort of... And Chevron is on the way out, so... It, you, you, it, is that the consensus that it's... All I, 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 well, the right people head? I hang out with seem to think it's, you know, it's edging, it's slowly being rolled back. Explain to, 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 the, to the viewers 
what Chevron. Um, well, the, the, the short version is, uh, is that in that case, I forget what year that was, but um, uh, the, the Supreme Court basically said you have to give deference to the eight independent agencies to, you know, to make the decisions, just what you said, which is, hey, they're the experts, give them deference. Well, that Chevron deference, as it's referred to. Um, 84. 84. Thanks for looking that up. <laughs> You're doing the thinking so I can do the typing. Okay. The, uh, you know, that uh, really is problematic because, when you know, this unelected bunch of bureaucrats, the deep state is making the rules and deciding, uh, you know, deciding issues that really should be left to Congress to decide. You know, they we elected them to decide some, and these are important questions that get decided. It's not like whether where the where the transmitter should be located three, you know, should be fifteen feet to the left. No, this is you know, bigger bigger policy issues. Should we outlaw transmitters? Yes, right. You know, I, I, and so now you have you have these traditional areas of policy and stuff that you know under the Commerce Clause jurisprudence that isn't going away in our lifetimes is well within the realm of what Congress is allowed to regulate. Now along comes this entire new segment of of administrative power called the intelligence community mm -hmm. and your father having been involved in watergate well this at be the careful. end be careful yeah right <laughs> the young people will not necessarily understand. yeah you know but ha having been in the nixon white house during that during that time and 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 dealt dealing with the very sensitive issues of when do cabinet members and when do department heads listen or not listen to the president. I mean, regardless of what anyone thinks of Trump, what we saw certainly in the last year of his of his presidency was a was a, a, an executive branch out of control, in my opinion. They they did not. I mean, we've heard stuff now about about the chief of staff basically making his own military policy, or or or, or even. Uh, meeting with members of Congress to tell them what they're, how they're guarding against what the chief, uh, what, the, what the commander in chief might do. Yeah, well, I, it was a mess. And it was, it has certainly had um, a flavor of the, the, the Nixon final years as well. Uh, I don't know that Donald Trump was bugging Democrats and things. They were bugging him, apparently, but- um, Well, that was okay, though, because they're on the right side. That's right. Well, depending on who you ask. Uh, <clears throat> so what's the question? <laughs> you know, it's not even a- The question is, I, I think this is, in a, you know, you have the administrative state, again, traditionally agencies, but then you've got these secret agencies, which not only- are, is Congress not making these decisions? But what the agencies, the, the reporting of the agencies to Congress and the funding of these agencies by Congress is largely cloaked. That's right. a real constitutional problem. Right. Um, it is. I, I, I would suggest it is a constitutional problem. I would also suggest that uh, it, it serves, a, the, the real purpose is it serves to protect them from uh, any real serious oversight uh and also they can they can uh, bury their mistakes 
there was an interesting op-ed in the in the New York Times today, which I just just skimmed. So forgive me. It was the I think NSA former general counsel uh, writing that the real problem in intelligence is that um, uh, we don't really do a very good job of protecting our secrets. You know, we're very good at developing new techniques for finding out new secret information, but we're doing very, we don't do a very good job of protecting our secrets. Uh, and uh, this is based on the uh, the recent leaks by some you know very subordinate uh, Air National Guard guy, right? You know? um, uh, it, I would argue that that uh, that we need to do both. We need to protect our our intelligence, um, but we also need to have better oversight of it. And they they you know they. As I understand it, they're not. The, many of these agencies aren't even responding to the uh, Senate right. Intelligence Committee when they right. ask so, questions. Right. So there's no. There's really. There's. It's. It's really a. a you know, you got rogue arms of government with plenary power and zero accountability, and they're being in. Their their people are being embedded into corporate America in the social network. I mean, it turns out you know how many former FBI people were involved in the censorship program at Twitter and are still at Facebook and Google. It's mine. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that if your father were still with us, and I'm sure you wish he were for so many reasons, um, he'd have lots to say about this. Well, I, have, I, I do because I have lots of questions I'd like to ask him. But, uh... <laughs> I bet, I bet. And I feel the same way about my father, who was not a professor at Yale. Uh, or, or a great legal scholar. Your father changed, he changed the world by virtue of changing America and changing the way uh, American courts deal with the American economy. Definitely, as you point out, the, the extent of innovation and just the entire way business is done in this country. And and you, again, just, as, just to, to finish off, you brought back the book, you republished it as part of, of an effort to address what you thought were inappropriate vilification, was inappropriate vilification from this new crowd. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I listened to what Elizabeth Warren was saying back in the several years ago, and, you know, she was organizing, you know, the left-wing economic equivalent of the Appalachian meeting, you know, she was, she, had, she got the Lena Khan and Tim Wu and these other lefties together, and they began their plan, their assault on antitrust, which is actually when my father was writing the book in the 60s, something he was very worried about. He was worried about the socialists hijacking antitrust, you know, decades before. Well, they've done it now, and they're in power, and they're 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 trying to change antitrust law and bring cases. Luckily, they're losing many of them, but they're but they think sooner or later they're going to you know break down the wall, and if Biden get get enough ju judges uh nominated and confirmed that have no understanding of economics or exactly. antitrust they'll exactly. they'll get some good decisions uh, i hope not i hope uh, not and it, it's but it's absolutely but anything seems to be possible these days in the courts. yeah mm -hmm. bob i think we probably could go on for hours like this we seem to have a lot of uh, common interests and we've always enjoyed working together. I hope you have a chance to do it again soon. Thanks for spending this time with us. I uh, so enjoyed myself. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to see you again. Same here. And, uh, yes, do do ask me back, and I'll uh, we can now expand beyond antitrust into other subjects. Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.